Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. So we're opening our Bibles today to the book of Romans, which was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, there's several reasons that he wrote this letter, but one of the reasons is that this church was deeply divided among between theological lines. You see, as Matt explained in, in the first week of the letter, that the, the people in Rome heard the gospel for the first time at Pentecost. They heard when Peter stood up after the Holy Spirit fell Peter stood up and he preached the gospel and all of these people from all of these nations heard it in their own language. Some of the people who were there that day were from Rome and they carried this gospel message back to Rome and started to share this good news with both Jews and Gentiles. And the church grew. But after a little while, the Jews were actually expelled from Rome by the emperor named Claudius. And after about five years, the Jews came back. And when they did, they came back to a church that looked very different from the one that they had left. You see, when they first brought the gospel back to Rome, they were teaching the Gentiles that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has fulfilled all of these prophecies of the Old Testament. But... If you're gonna follow Jesus, you also need to follow the law. You need to observe the Sabbath. You need to not eat unclean things. You need to be circumcised so that you can show, so that you can prove that you have been made right with God. Well, when they were gone, well, the, the Gentiles aren't Jewish. They had nothing about them to keep them following this law, and they were like, we have freedom in Christ, man. That's the old law. It's gone. That's Moses. We're part of this new covenant with Jesus. And the Jews are like, are you kidding me? No, you have to have the law. And so there was this question of who can be made right with God? How are we made right with God? And there was deep disagreement between the Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. And so Paul wrote in order to address some of these tensions within a very diverse group of believers because he wanted the Roman church to be a sending force of the gospel out into the world and specifically to Spain. And he knew that a divided church is not going to be a sending church. It was very important that they be unified to one another. And by addressing these theological issues, he explains to them how not only we have peace with God, but also with one another. Because when you have peace with God and you're made right with God, that opens the door for you to be made right with your fellow man. So last week, we learned a new word together. We learned the word justified. And I love the definition that Matt used, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means, even if you did do it, you're justified, 
It is as if you have never sinned. It's a legal term. And if you were justified, you would have been treated as such. You would have been treated as innocent. Now, in this time in a court of law, there were two verdicts that were given at the end of a trial. Now, here in America, if someone stands trial, at the end of the trial, you are either uh, declared guilty or what? Not guilty. Guilty or not guilty. Not guilty or innocent. But in this court system, you would have either been declared justified or condemned, just as if you had never done it, or you super did it, and you're going to be punished for it. Super did it. There's your theological term. <laughs> so you had two words, justified and condemned. And the question concerning the church in Rome was, how are you justified. If it's not part, if it's not by the law, then how is it? How are we justified? Now today, if you brought your physical Bibles with you, we're going to be in mainly two places in the Bible, pretty far apart. So if you're a bookmark person like me and you don't want to be flipping pages, go ahead, mark your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be at the tail end of Romans chapter three and in chapter four. And we're also going to be in Genesis. So in just a second, I'm going to tell you to turn to Genesis, and I don't want you to be shocked, okay? It's a lot of pages to have to turn. Genesis is at the very beginning. Romans is close to the end, okay? All right, so here we go. How are we justified? Well, Paul tells us at the end of the passage that we finished with last week, Romans chapter 3, 26, he says, God presented him, this is Jesus, God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is not a trick question here, and we're even going to leave the answer on the screen for you, okay? How is someone justified? Justified the one who, what, has faith in what? In Jesus, in who he has faith in Jesus. So you're justified through faith in Jesus. Now, the believers there in Rome, especially the Jewish believers, probably had some questions about this. And Paul anticipated this because he had been answering these questions for a really long time at this point. And probably he himself, when he first met Jesus on that road to Damascus, he probably had these same questions when he was trying to reconcile the fact that he had been a teacher and upholder of the law for his whole life. And now he's, he's learning that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. And so he anticipates that the Jews are going to have some questions about righteousness through faith. And I want to tell you here that questions are not bad. In fact, in this culture, questions were welcomed. Jewish rabbis would have taught their disciples through questioning. We see it with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus asked a lot of questions, and a lot of people had questions for Jesus. And sometimes he answered a question with a question. 
The Jewish people loved questioning and they learned. They taught their kids how to ask good questions. Here in our culture, we tell our kids don't ask questions just, just because a mommy said so, okay? <laughs> Here in our culture, we sometimes get offended by questions. But questions are not something to take offense to. Questions are an opportunity. They're an opportunity for us to share why we're saying or why we're doing the things that we are doing. And I also want to tell you on that point, it's okay to ask God questions. I've heard even in the last week people say, I know we're not supposed to question God. False. Where do you see that? Where? Even Jesus himself while hanging on the cross, asked a question. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus is allowed to ask a question of his father while hanging on the cross, so are we. You can ask your questions to God. You could say, God, why? Why has this thing happened? Why did that child die? Why does my mom have cancer? Why? Why can't I get a job? Why? It's okay. God is not bothered by your questions. He holds all the answers. Take them to him. So Paul anticipates these questions, and we read them at the end of Romans 3, starting in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? So this is a question he anticipates. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Second question. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So those are the first two questions he anticipates. One, can I brag about being right before God? No, because you didn't do anything to earn it. It came by faith. Number two was, so wait, God's not just our God? Correct. There's only one God. How can there be a God of the Jews and a God of the Gentiles? We worship the one true God. Of course, there's only one God. And then the third question, which to Paul was probably of utmost importance, because see, Paul had been accused of being a Jew who had abandoned the law, who had disowned and detached himself from the law to the extent that he was being accused of encouraging people to be disobedient to the law just to prove the grace of God, which he addresses in more depth in a, a couple chapters. But Right here, he wants to set the record straight. So verse 31 says, do we then nullify the law through faith? And Paul answers in the most emphatic negative that he possibly can. It's translated here as absolutely not. Nope on a rope. May it never be. Perish the thought. No. The law of faith does not nullify the law of Moses. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And in fact, 
this, this thing that we're calling the law of faith, the Jewish people would have felt like this is new to us, Paul. This is new news. Never, never heard of this before. But Paul's getting ready to give two examples to his readers to show them that this law of faith is not only upheld, but completely supported by the entirety of the law. So not just the law of Moses as far as like the law given on, the, on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all that, but the whole law, which they consider to be the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was the whole of the law. And he's going to show them that faith, righteousness through faith, has been from the beginning. So I'm going to assume that nobody in here has memorized most of the book of Genesis. And so when Paul in just a few minutes says, what does scripture say about Abraham? I want you to be able to know what scripture says about Abraham. So will you turn with me back to Genesis chapter 12? And we're just going to go through this quickly because I want to make sure that We all have the same understanding before we move forward into Paul's letter. All right, so Genesis 12 is when Abram comes on the scene, and God comes on the scene to Abraham, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go out from, by the way, Abram is Abraham's name before God changed his name to Abraham. So Abram is Abraham, Same, same guy, different name. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now, a couple things I want you to notice here. God came to Abraham. He, just, he asked him to go to this place that he's going to show him. He didn't tell him where he's going. He's like, I'm going to show you this place. Come with me. And I'm going to do all this stuff for you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Everybody, all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. Now, flip over a couple chapters to Genesis 15. A few things have happened between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, which we don't have time to get in today, but you're welcome to go back this week as you're reading the Bible and read uh, chapters 13 and 14. But it says in verse 1, after these events, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, So a slave born in my house will be my heir. He says, God, you're going to give me a great reward. That sounds amazing. But this great inheritance that you want to give me, 
I'm going to have to pass it on to a slave. Like, do you not see, do you not see the problem here? And God, God, of course, he sees the problem. He sees it all. In verse 4, it says, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky. Count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that we're on mostly equal footing with the Jewish people who would have been reading or reading Paul's letter, let's flip back to Romans chapter 4. Let's see why Paul wants to talk about Abraham. Verse 1. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? What has he found out about this whole idea of justification through faith? What has he found out? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So here we have another word that we need to define, that we need to learn. And it's one you're probably familiar with, credited. It's also very fun to say, just rolls right off the tongue. Credited. Credited. Credit is an accounting term. It means to put something into someone's account. Now, there's two reasons that Paul says that someone might put something into your account. The first one he lays out in verse four in, in the idea of there's an employee, an employer. There's someone who works in, agree, in, in the knowledge that he will get paid. Or there's an employer who needs some work done knowing that once this person does the work, I'm gonna have to pay him. That the right relationship will be done when one does the work and the other fulfills the commitment to pay the guy who did the work, okay? So it's a promised wages. He does the work, employee pays, and now the relationship is right between the two. But the second instance that he lays out in verse five says, to the one who does not work, and here it doesn't mean like doesn't have a job, doesn't work. This means works of the law. The one who does not do the works of the law, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. The one who recognizes, I have nothing to give. I am spiritually bankrupt before God. The best things that I can do amount to nothing. But I need God to justify me. If I'm going to be justified, God's going to have to be the one who does it. The right relationship between us and God doesn't really look like eye to eye, but it looks like servant to king. When we're in right relationship with God, it's not like we can look God in the eye and be like, cool. 
when we understand what God has done for us, who he is and what he is offering, we are like beggars accepting the gift. I lived in the Czech Republic for a year after I graduated from college. And one of the things that surprised me the most was when we went into the city of Prague. And here, beggars stand on the street corners, right? And they hold up signs and maybe they have like a bag or or something to, you know, collect. Some have square and you can scan your card. Um, (laughs) uh, But in Czech, the way that people beg in the street is down on their knees. They would literally be on their knees. They would have their head to the ground and their hands out like this. They didn't ask anything. They didn't wave a sign. They didn't have anything propped up next to them saying why that they were in need. They just kneel down and hold out their hands and hope that someone will put something in them. That is how we are before God. We don't need to advertise to God our need. He already knows. And his gift of grace is so rich and so free that if we will just hold out our hands and believe, he is righteous and just to give and forgive. You see, we are not owed anything from God, nothing. Nothing big, nothing small. If God gave us what we were owed, we would get, in the words of my seven-year-old, H-E double hockey sticks. And that's not being dramatic. We deserve death. We deserve hell. When you stand in the presence of a holy God, even your, your best things that you've ever done are filthy rags. God owes us nothing. And when I understand that I owe God everything and can give him nothing, but then he who owes me nothing turns around and gives me everything, that is a God that I want to believe in. That is a God that I want to trust. He goes on. So he's talked about Abraham. He wants to bring up David, which is an interesting move given that David had some pretty rough things that he did in his life. Abraham was justified by faith, but really the Jewish people thought that Abraham was pretty much perfect. There was very little that he did that that was bad enough to be called bad. I mean, yeah, he lied a couple times about his wife not being his wife but his sister, and then there was a whole debacle with Hagar. But, I mean, all in all, Abraham was a pretty great guy. And, yes, true, he did come before the law, so I can get how righteousness doesn't come from the law because, you know, blah, blah, he came before the law. But David, here Paul brings up David. David was born after the law. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And according to the law, he should have been stoned for those sins. But instead, he asks God for mercy. And you can read that in Psalm 51 where he cries out to God for his mercy and for his forgiveness. And God gives it. God forgives David of his sin. Now, it's not without punishment, not without consequence. It's actually pretty heavy. He says, look, your house is going to be a disaster. 
Your son's gonna sleep with your wives and everybody's gonna know about it. It's not gonna be great. But God had made a promise, a covenant with David that his kingdom would be established forever. That his kingdom would, would never end. So God kept his promise to David when David cried out for mercy and forgiveness. And we read that in Psalm 32, and that's what Paul quotes here. He says this in verse six. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. And there we sort of see that idea again of credit. That God's not charging you for your sin. God's not making you pay for your sin. That's what Jesus did for us. He doesn't make us pay. David's sins weren't forgiven because he obeyed to the law. No, indeed, he transgressed the law to the uttermost. Because, but he believed that God can make him clean. Even we have a hard time reconciling that someone like David, like a murderer, even though he slayed Goliath and even though he did all of these great things, that a murderer, somebody who murders the husband of your mistress, that that person could be made right with God. So we've dealt with how God has made righteous Abraham and how God made righteous David apart from and also, you know, sort of within the law. But what about people who, like, aren't physical descendants of Abraham? What about people who aren't Jewish? What about people who aren't circumcised? What about people who don't know or follow the law? How can they possibly be made right? Romans 4 verse 9 says, Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness, In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. You see, we read 12 and 15 in Genesis, you know, earlier. It's not until Genesis 17. So after he had already been declared righteous, that he was circumcised. Circumcised was only a sign and a seal of what had already been promised to Abraham. Verse 11, and when he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised, this was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. He's saying, don't don't just have external signs of faith. Have faith inside. Follow the footsteps of faith. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And I want you to understand that verse. He's saying, look, you don't need faith 
to do the works of the law. You can just do them, and we know this to be true. You don't have to have faith to observe the Sabbath. You don't have to have faith to take your goat to the temple to be sacrificed. You just do it. You don't, you don't have to have faith to stop drinking. You don't have to have faith to not cuss. You don't have to have faith to not have sex with your girlfriend. You just don't do it. It's about your works. It's about your behavior. You don't have to have faith. You can do all of the external things without having faith. You can come to church without having faith. You can have lyrics to the song Oceans painted on a picture above your mantle and still not have faith. All of these are external signs. What God is concerned with with, and what Paul is telling us here is that the promise is by faith. If not, then why even promise anything at all? The law was basically then a contract that God said, okay, here's the law, you keep the law, I'll give you righteousness. Then it becomes God owes us because we kept the law. And it is a way for us to say, God, I'm doing what I'm supposed to, don't you see, don't you see, now you owe me. The gift of God, the gift of Jesus was never a contractual agreement. It was always a gift of grace. He goes on, verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. You see, we did not inherit Abraham's flesh. I mean, you might be, I'm not descended. I don't have a Jewish lineage. I did not descend from Abraham's flesh. But I did descend from his faith. And we have received an inheritance of faith through Abraham. But when I think about faith and people who have walked in faith, honestly, Abraham's not the first guy that I think of. When I think about having an inheritance of faith, the people that I see are my parents. I see my mom who stopped us before we went out the door to school so that she could pray over us before we walked into that school building. I think about my dad having conversations about the Bible in the car, around the table. I think about grandparents who pulled me into a hug and prayed over me before I went on many different adventures. I think about grandparents who I know spent time on their knees on my behalf. I think about my aunts and my uncles and my cousins who have boldly lived out their faith in front of me to my benefit. And not just people who are related to me. I think about my Sunday school teachers who shared the stories of the Bible with me. I think about the pastor's wife, who is also our children's choir director, who taught us what it is to have salvation, and who said, if you want to be saved, this is all you have to do. I think about friends who have struggled through some of the hardest things that I've ever seen, and they have allowed me to watch them walk in faith through incredibly difficult trials. Who 
are you building up an inheritance of faith for? Who are you letting see your life so that God might be glorified? So that the thing that they inherit from you isn't safety and security and comfort in money or land or Bitcoin, but that they have security and comfort in Jesus, that they see, that they remember, they watched you walk in faith and that they receive this inheritance of faith as a way to say, my mom chose Jesus. My mom chose to accept that gift of grace and I saw her live it out every day of her life, even when it was hard, even when she had to apologize to me for yelling at me again. I saw people walk out their faith. And so as we so often strive to make sure that we're leaving something behind for our kids, are you leaving behind an inheritance of faith the way that Abraham did? More than an inheritance of flesh, something that can't ever be taken out of a bank account, something that no person on earth can ever erase. Leave behind an inheritance of faith for those who come behind you. Romans 4, 17. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist he believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will, your, so will your descendants be. All these stars, that's how your descendants are going to be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God has promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, Paul asks, what does scripture say? He asks that in verse three. What does scripture say, Abraham believed God. You see, Abraham had absolutely no business believing God. God, God came on the scene when Abraham was 75 years old. For 75 years, we learned this at the end of Joshua, his family worshiped idols. He came from an idol worshiping family. He didn't have a grandmother who taught him about the one true God. He would have had many idols that were supposed to do all of these different things. He didn't know this God who came to him and made all of these promises to him. Abraham believed before he'd even seen God make good on these promises. I mean, on almost all counts, God had not kept his word to Abraham. He had no children, no great name, no land. Now, God had blessed him, that is for sure. He had many flocks, he had many people in his clan. God had blessed him, but all those other things, Abraham, he had not seen the fulfillment of those things yet. And even still, he still believed. 
He was 99 years old when he was circumcised and he still believed. I heard some laughs there, you get it. He had fathered one son by a slave, but Sarah had still not had Isaac. And God said, "Your Ishmael, he's not gonna be through whom this covenant is given. It's gonna be one from Sarah. Sarah had Isaac. Sarah was 90. She'd never had a kid. Abraham was 99. He considered his body and her body and was like, there's no way that this is gonna produce life. Okay, we, we are dead here as far as procreating is concerned. But even considering this, he didn't waver in his belief. When it says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed, that word in Hebrew is spelled A-M-A-N, or it's transliterated A-M-A-N, amen. So be it. God said, I'm gonna do all this stuff for you. I'm gonna make your children more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Abraham said, okay, I believe you. I don't know how you're gonna do it because look at me. And he wasn't stepping outside of reality. He, he wasn't saying like, oh, I mean, we're probably fine. No, he fully understood that he was himself incapable of having a baby with Sarah. God was going to have to do that, but he believed that he could. John R. W. Stott says this, although to be sure faith goes beyond reason, it always has a firmly rational basis. In particular, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. There was something about this God that Abraham thought was trustworthy. You see, he'd been dealing in the counterfeit for 75 years. And when he encountered the one true God, he knew he could trust him. What does scripture say? Is God's word enough for you to believe that he can and will do all of the things that he has promised to do? Do you know his word well enough to claim those promises? Do you have a million questions for God? Do you say, God, whenever you answer all of these questions, I'll believe. God, whenever you prove yourself, whenever you do this thing, then I'll believe. But maybe God is saying, yes, I do have the answers to all your questions and I want to bless you so richly, but I need you to believe. Maybe today, the way you respond to this message is not anything fancy, but it's just saying, okay, God, I don't know how you're gonna do it. Look at my circumstances. Okay, I believe. God, I don't know how in the world you can be real because I've got all of these people on the internet and in books telling me that you are not. But there's something about you, the one true God, you're better than the counterfeit. I believe. I don't have to have all the answers, but I believe you. Maybe today you are the picture of outward expression of faith. 
you've been baptized, you wear Bible verses on your t-shirt, you have perfect attendance at church, but on the inside, you are so fearful to fully trust and believe in God because you think at any minute, he's gonna pull the rug out from under you. That at any moment, the other shoe is gonna drop. But I'm telling you, we serve a God who will not pull the rug out from under you. We do not serve a bait and switch God. He is a good and loving Father. And He is able to bring things to life that were dead, and He can call into existence things that did not exist, and that is really good news for us. Because Paul says this in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might be able to display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. God, we cannot boast before you. We are bankrupt beggars on our knees with our hands open wide, so ready and thankful to receive and to hold this gift of grace. That when we believe in what you have done for us, we will be made right with you, that we will be saved. God, I pray that we desire more than to show external signs of following you. God, but that you will Give us the faith that we need to follow you with our whole lives. Thank you, God, for our time in your word today. I trust you and I trust what your word says that it will not return void. You have instructed us well today, Lord. We give you all the glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We would love to know what you're learning in the word. We'd love to know how we can equip you to study his word better. So have a conversation with us. Use the respond feature on the app and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.